Uh, a few days later, it turned out I had what's called like an ocular migraine. I thought I was blind in one eye. I actually wasn't. It was stress induced. That, that was my oh shit moment. Every decade, there's one or two deals that really, really matter. And so the question is always, are we seeing those? And how do we determine whether or not we're seeing the companies that matter? There needs to be something they can identify you by. Like, I think a lot of it is being able to summarize your identity that you want to sell to a firm within one or two lines. Hi, everyone. I'm Taiki, and you're listening to New to Venture. It's the show that dives deep into the world of startups and venture capital. From the multi-billion dollar exits to the biggest company blow-ups, if you don't know much about early stage companies and investing, you've come to the right place. It's game time because on the show today, we have the one and only Casey Zhang. In his past life, Casey created a competitive video gaming esports company called Challengers Uprising, which got acquired by Unified. He spent a year at Glasswing Ventures investing in frontier AI and machine learning startups before the huge AI boom. Rose up the ranks at Rough Draft Ventures to become one of the managing partners, and now recently joined Audacious Ventures, investing in some of the best B2B software startups in the world. And he's fresh out of college. Welcome to the show, my friend and fellow Northeastern Husky, Casey Zhang. Thanks for having me. I, I like how you highlighted that I was doing AI stuff before <laughs> before the boom, given that uh, it's it's all that everyone seems to be talking about these days. Oh yeah, after the uh, after ChatGPT came out and they got to a million users in like a snap, all of a sudden AI has just been the talk of the town. But uh, that's we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. To start us off, let's talk about that company that you built and sold. Yeah, yeah. Let's see where to start. Um, so yeah, obviously my background started in gaming and esports. When I was in high school, I actually competed professionally in League of Legends, um, and then from there realized that. I was good enough to realize how bad I was um, and then decided, you know, I probably don't have the skill or the patience really to, to play and become, you know, one of the best compete on the world stage and all that. Uh, so transitioned over to coaching and coaching Europe and North America for a couple of years. Um, and then somewhere along the line, I was between two gigs in coaching, was looking at a few options. And then a friend reached out to me. I was like, hey, do you want to help me run this tournament for uh, Amateur League of Legends? And I said, hey, why not? Um, one thing led to another, eventually ended up co-founding the company. We got started around the beginning of the pandemic, so in March 2020, uh, and then ran for about a year and a half before it got acquired. Well, so what what is it that the, the company specifically did? Was it a coaching agency? So we handle a lot of the tournament operations and production side of things. So let's say you're a game developer like Riot Games, Valorant, League of Legends, or you know Activision Blizzard with Overwatch, etc., a big part of their marketing or branding push is to run a bunch of tournaments, right? Esports, competitive video gaming, and all that. Um, and while they handle, you know, most of their tier one competitions, there's a bunch of, you know, more grassroots uh, events that they'll need to organize that they typically have trouble handling themselves. And so they'll go to a third party provider, someone like us, um, and we would bid on the contracts. And if we win them, we would host the production or we would handle the production. We would host the tournaments. We would, we would handle all the logistics with hiring freelancers, uh, shoutcasters and everything else. And then we will also gain sponsorship revenue on the side. Wow. Okay. And were you, were you guys ever VC backed? So we had a few angel investors, but we never raised institutional funding, which is also, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but part of the reason why uh, I eventually decided to go into VC. Yeah. Okay. So how did you get your first your first client or your first customer? 
I think it was mostly just through connections. Yeah, it was mostly just through the network. Yeah, it, it was basically, we were, you know, Rai reached out to us, uh, had a few conversations about running uh, some amateur leagues and operation and tournaments in North America. And I think one thing led to another. Obviously, like a bunch of outreach was a part of the process as well, but a lot of it was organic inbound. Oh, okay. I gotcha. And at, at its peak, how many like events or how many clients were you working with? We typically operated two, three events at a time. So like every quarter, there were like two, three events that we'd be, we'd be putting on. Um, in terms of peaks, uh, let's see, our, our our premier event that we were running for League of Legends was, you know, called Challengers Uprising, same as the name of the company itself. Um, we were getting up to, I think our, I believe our peak was around 20,000, 25,000 concurrent viewers on, on Twitch. Um, and that was pretty fun. We had Red Bull as a sponsor. We had a few wow. other sponsors in the pipeline as well. That's fantastic. And did they come out to reach, like, they, did Red Bull reach out to you guys? Or you were like, we need money to sponsor some of these events. You reached out to Red Bull. I think it was more natural than that. You know, one of the co-founders had a, had a relationship with some representatives at Red Bull already. And then one thing led to another. Uh, they ended up sponsoring, um, as a part of that sponsorship process as well, they also shipped me uh, three crates of Red Bull, um, which didn't, you know, which I think really accelerated my Caffeine dependency, uh, <laughs> for better or for worse. It just started early, yeah. Oh my, and well, this is all during the pandemic, actually, right? You said they started at the beginning of the pandemic. So all of these were all done remote, these like events. Yeah, and... fully remote. I've I've never met any of my co-founders in person yet. Hopefully that will change soon. Um, but yeah, it, it was a great experience and I did it, uh, or I tried my best to juggle it with, uh, along with classes. <laughs> yeah. Was it fun? Like, did you, you know, you were originally a gamer, right? And that's always going to be super fun until it gets super competitive. Then it becomes like high expectations, a little nerve wracking. Um, but being on like the business side, events, operations side of it, is that more your speed? It was fun until it wasn't is the best, it's the best way for me to put it. Um, I think there's always a, there's always a, not an issue, but there's growing pains when it comes to turning something that, you know, was a pastime passion or quite frankly, like a distraction away from the stresses in your life into the primary stress of your life. Um, and for me, like, I don't, I don't game that much these days, unfortunately. I, I try to make time, um, but, you know, work and everything else. I think on top of that, like, I, I haven't played League of Legends in years. And I think part of it was just, I, I think there's some inherent burnout that I got after spending so many years in the, on the competitive side and on the business side. Um, it, you know, there's almost like a loss of innocence factor to it as well. Um, I don't think I'd ever found a company in esports again. Uh, this space is a little bit, I, I've become disillusioned to the space to, to be completely candid, but I mean, you, you live and you learn. Yeah, absolutely. And is that why you chose to sell? Is that you were just feeling some burnout? Um, or was it that this, you didn't think that this company was going anywhere. So you had the opportunity to, to jump ship and he took it. Yeah, I you know, jumping ship is an interesting analogy. I think for us, fundamentally, we were services-based, right? The idea is that right, we right. go to game developers and we go to potential sponsors and we sell our services of running tournaments and productions and things like that. Um, and that was great. You know, we were growing really fast. But then the issue is that when you're scaling a services-based uh, business, typically your, your revenue stays pretty linearly, you know, related to your costs as well in terms of more freelancers they have to hire. We would have to go on full time if we want to continue expanding the organization. Um, and so the idea there was like, okay, if we want to continue growing, we need to productize, right? We need to build uh, some sort of software platform. We need to sell that. Um, and this is one like the biggest mistakes you can make in the book. The 
the skill set requires to be really good at you know running a services agency for example is very different than the skill set you need to run a successful software company um and i think you know we we gradually came to that kind of realization uh combined with the fact that you know there were two other companies in the space that were interested in acquiring us i think it was more of a um proactive thing you know you know one thing led to another you know the stars kind of aligned and we thought it was a fitting you know fitting exit opportunity um, we ended up selling to, as you mentioned, Unify, which is this company down in Kansas um, and, you know, parted separate ways. And, you know, and that was kind of the rationale or the the motivation um, behind me getting into VC as well. I think part of it was I'm going to found another company eventually. And so the question is always, how do I maximize my rate of learning? Um, and, you know, one of the things that we failed to do was raise institutional funding right from venture capitalists and the like. Um, and so a big motivation for me was like, hey, I want to see on the opposite end of the table. I want to learn more about, you know, how do investors evaluate companies at the earliest stages and, you know, what makes a compelling uh, software business and all of that. Yeah. Well, did you did you guys try to raise institutional funding? Like, what were you going to VC pitch meetings or you were like, we already had the funds from our angel investors. We're just going to keep building out this thing. Yeah, we, we thought about it loosely, but it was never something that we, I think, like super heavily considered. Like we never, you know, began an official fundraising process. Um, yeah, and I think part of that, again, was like the mindset of the of me and the other founders at the time. Like we were cash flow positive um, based on the operations and like the, the customers we had at the time. But then again, like scaling into more of the product side was was something that we we saw as almost like insurmountable at the time, to be honest. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. I got to ask. I'm just a little curious myself. What was the number that you guys were OK with selling the company for? Low seven figures, but it was a combination of cash and stock and the cash is paid over time. Wow. Congratulations. So looking back at that entire experience, right, from ideation to like using your connections to get sponsorships and get clients to finally the acquisition, what were some of the the highlights and lowlights, the best parts where you were so excited to be part of this project and also the lowlights were like, oh my goodness, I got to get out of here. Yeah, so I would say the highlight or the highlights of the experience was just getting to work with people that are super, super passionate. I think esports and gaming as a whole is a space that traditionally underpays people and they do that because they can get away with it, right? Folks are really passionate about gaming uh, and they want to turn to their full-time job. And I think it was a similar it was a similar dynamic in our experiences. And I think that really shows through the quality of the products that we put out in terms of our broadcast that we were, that we were running, uh, the people that we were working with. That. So I would say like the people was the best part um, and just seeing like tangible growth for us in terms of viewership, engagement. Um, yeah, community building on like a week-by-week -week basis, that was great. The low light was probably the stress that came with it i think there's there's one there's one specific event that comes to mind for me um it was in i believe like april 2021 and so we we're getting close to finalizing the acquisition then um i was juggling i was juggling a couple of things i was i was working on the company uh i was taking classes uh during the pandemic and then i was also applying for my my first co-op uh at, at northeastern um and then i was also running the Husky Startup Challenge, which is the Entrepreneurs Club on campus's uh, startup incubator. So I was juggling those four things at a time. And I think it was kind of getting to me. Um, so I was I was between two Zoom classes. Um, I got up from my chair and I realized like, hey, you know, my, my left eye is kind of blurry. Um, so I'm like, oh, you know, maybe it's my glasses. I clean my glasses. 
um, vision stays blurry. Then I'm like, oh, maybe there's something in my eye. Go to the sink, wash out my eye, and then I realized it got worse. Um, and then it felt like my my vision kept on deteriorating until there was a there was a moment of like a period like 20, 30 minutes where I literally thought I was blind in my left eye. Um, and I, I was fine. I'm fine afterwards. I'm fine now. Well, my, given I'm still blind as a bat, I wear glasses, uh, but, but I can, I can still see I'll, I'll be at poorly. Um, but I went to an optometrist uh, a few days later. It turned out I had, you know, what was called like an ocular migraine. I, I believe it's like almost like psychosomatic in the sense that I, I thought I was, I thought I was blind in one eye. I actually wasn't. Um, but it was, it was stress induced. And at that moment, like, oh shit. Yeah. That, that was my oh shit moment. Uh, in terms of like, okay, I need I need to manage what I'm doing a little bit better, and maybe I had uh, a little bit too much on my plate. Wow, yeah. So which one had to go? Well, the acquisition was already in the works, so thankfully, once that was like all signed, you could focus on other things a little bit better. Exactly. Yeah. So finally, as the acquisition started stepping down, you know, in the in the last few months, scaling down the the work that we were doing. Um, so that went, uh, I never placed school or classes, you know, as a very high on my list of priorities. And so that naturally went as well. Uh, so it was mostly just running the, uh, the student incubator as well as, um, finding jobs. And, th and thankfully I found my first call pretty quickly. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's a lot of things I want to touch upon there, but, uh, really quickly, what did you, what did you study or what did you major in at Northeastern? Business administration. And so you, you didn't find that any of those classes or material was helpful towards, well, building your company or um, your first co-op as an investor? Yeah, I, I would say it, it's interesting that business became a major that's offered by institutions in the first place. I think traditionally um, different majors have always had some sort of academic inclination or root you know like let's say like people study latin or people study philosophy um or people or even the sciences like say physics or computer science and all that but i i think it, it's hard for me personally and this is my own two cents uh to take the study of business very seriously because inherently business is about practice and about uh experiential uh, learning, right? To, to throw a buzzword that Northeastern University loves to use a lot. Um, and, and less so about the classroom experience, right? And so based on that, you know, there's only a few classes that I think would actually have provide tangible value. Like, let's say you want going to accounting or finance, like, okay, you can learn about how to handle like financial modeling or like the three financial statements and that whole classic thing, how they flow into each other. You know, investment bankers love asking about that interviews. Um, but the majority, like, if you want to learn about building a company, Business classes will not help you there. I mean, that's that's the end all be all, right? Like I majored in business. Uh, I did a minor in, in data science. I would say like data science was really useful in terms of the work I'm doing, like literally even now in terms of evaluating tech companies. Um, and I mean, there were there was a class or two in, in, in my business major that I thought were useful, that I thought provided value, but not all like, Maybe maybe I'm a bad being a bad representative here, but I, I wouldn't recommend folks do business majors if they uh if they want to build a company. Or at least maybe a minor, but not not as your full time, not as your like primary uh area of study. Well said. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if you knew this, but I majored in bioengineering at Northeastern. There we go. Yeah, and, so you're better off uh, for it. Well, I, I haven't found much correlation between being an <laughs> investor and bio I actually worked, I did an internship at um, at a firm that specialized in biotech investing. 
And so I, even with my bioengineering background, I still found it incredibly difficult and almost like a new world entirely. So uh, I really hear what you're saying about how classes and real world experiences, there may not be as much correlation as, as people think. Um, I'd like to go more into, I guess you had mentioned how data analytics has helped you to a certain extent evaluate startups. So I'd love to go through your thought process when you have a software company come to you and pitch. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll preface this with saying my background in VC and my current job in VC all focuses around early stage. Uh, my The entirety of my background is around pre-seed and seed rounds. So the first, you know, one or two in, rounds of institutional funding that, that you know, startups would raise. Uh, and, and, you know, and at this at these stages, like there's there's not much in the way of actual tangible progress or traction. Like you're not going to find companies that are you know, that built out complete product platforms or have, you know, millions and millions in annual recurring revenue. Um, and so fundamentally, what you're going to hear every investor talk about, uh, it, it's going to boil down to two things. It's going to be team and market, right? Um, team as in, are these founders compelling? Like, can they actually drive people? Do they have the charisma to drive people to drop their, you know, well-paying golden handcuffs, you know, and big tech jobs to join them in their in their startup? Um, do they have the ability to storytell? Like, can they sell investors on their narrative? Because a lot of it is, um, I, I think fundamentally the question is like, is this, a, is this a founder that can, you know, perform reality distortion, right? Because, you know, inherently the successful startups are, are black swan events. Uh, the industry is precipitated on the assumption that uh, outcomes exist on the power law, right? A small amount of companies will drive the large majority of the returns in this specific asset class. And so for founders, you know, if you're investing when they have very little of nothing in the way of tangible progress or, or, or you know, projects built out, then they need to be able to convince people right? At a, at when there's little in terms of indicators. Um, so I think that's one part of it for, for team. Another part of it is like, do they have domain experience, right? Do they understand a lot about it? Like, let's say, you know, based on your background, like bioengineering, right? If someone's building a biotech company, well, they probably should have some sort of background. They can't just be Joe Schmo off the street who decides, hey, I want to build a, a drug that beats aging, right? It's not that simple. Um, it can be, you know, do they have the right networks built? Do they have the right approach to have asymmetric access to distribution channels, right? Are they able to sell better than other people? Are they able to get in front of potential customers more than other people? Um, and then fundamentally, like, uh, it also goes back to, iter you know, iterative speed. How fast can they iterate on what they built already? There's very few, I would say no founder ever, you know, no successful founder ever ends up, you know, their, their final product is never the same as their initial assumption, right? And so the question is always, how fast are they able to grow or change between each rate? Um, and look, it's like um, a friend of mine mentioned to me before, it's like in, in chess, right? Like, you know, you could be the best chess master in the world, but if I'm able to make two moves every time you make one, um, I don't know, I, <laughs> I, I think I might still lose against Magnus Carlsen. But, you know, let's say against a more reasonable opponent, I think I'll have a pretty good, pretty good shot. Um, so that's all all that stuff on the team side. And then on the market side, it's like, look, is the market big, right? Um, you can build a successful company and not be venture-backed. But again, you know, when it comes to relying on the power law and these outsized, you know, returns, you know, VCs are looking for companies that, you know, eventually either sell or IPO for upwards of, you know, $1 billion And, you know, everyone would love to have like a Decacorn, like a $10 billion company in their portfolio. Um, 
if you're selling towards a small market, that's going to be difficult, right? And so, um, yeah, the, the way that we view it at my current firm, Audacious, is look, we want to invest in A-plus teams tackling super, super big markets um, since we think, you know, great companies are built at the intersection of those two things. As someone who is younger in VC, I feel like we take a lot of pitch calls, right? And maybe not even from uh, introductions from other VCs. Like we like source them ourselves sometimes. And when you're on these pitch calls, I, I agree. I look for the same things. Does this team have what it takes to take this company to become a multi-billion dollar company? But what I always find the most difficult is asking the right questions to get that information. For example, you talked about iterative speed, right? And that's like one of the most important qualities of a good founder. What are some questions that you ask to get an understanding whether they have that, that trait or not, that iterative speed that you're looking for? Yeah, I think part of it is based on how they describe their previous experiences or how they describe their process of company building so far. Um, but I think it's hard to get a sense of that from a, from one call. Um, oftentimes, you know, we, we end up tracking, we, we end up talking to companies that might be too early or too, or, or not mature enough or not looking for investment yet. Um, I think a large part of it when it comes to understanding iterative speed is having multiple touch points. You know, like let's say you talk to one founder as they just left their company to start working on an idea full time. And then you follow up with them six, nine months later when they're looking to fundraise. You can get a good sense of iterative speed uh, based on their progress from point A to point B. Right. Um, so I think that's a part of it. Another part of it is, you know, I think. When it goes back to this, it, it fundamentally is a people business, right? And so we, we rely on uh, references a lot from you know, past coworkers, uh, managers, um, peers, et cetera, um, to get a better sense like, hey, how does this person work in a team environment? Um, and really, you know, get a clear sense of more than just like what they say, but then what they do. Um, because again, that is, that's going to be a, you know, more one-to-one -one in terms of actually evaluating uh, their ability to to, to learn quickly, or I guess like you can call it like their slope versus Y intercept. Mm. And have you found that being like a previously exited founder to be helpful for evaluating other founders? I think it depends, right? Like I'm pretty confident. I, I, I uh, I'm pretty confident in my ability to evaluate, let's say like gaming and esports companies, right? Cause I've, uh, I built one before and sold it. Yeah, and, and so I think that experience gave me a pretty good understanding of the landscape for, let's say, gaming, esports, entertainment, et cetera. Um, and it's the same thing for like, like let's say, like AI ML. I have a good under, I have a good grasp of that because I've worked with multiple multiple firms that have invested in those companies. I built, you know, models myself. You know, have a background in data science. Um, I, I think in terms of evaluating, I think in terms of evaluating founder strength, or I guess like how my previous experiences helped me with that. I think. I think primarily as a previous founder myself, it helps build founder rapport. Um, and sometimes that means catching the the subtext in terms of what they're saying. Um, I think oftentimes like people just don't want to talk to yet another like finance bro turned buy side guy at a, at a VC firm, right? Um, I think that affects the questions that you might want to ask as well. I think um, I, I think on that part, like there are, there's like, the, you know, I, you know, there's like what Carl Sagan said, there's, there's no dumb questions. I agree with that, but I think there are more substantive questions and there are less substantial questions. Um, and I think you can find a lot of the common ones that people like to ask. Like you can just search up like, um, if you search up like slide deck, like investment slide deck, uh, checklist, 
a lot of the things that they want you to cover in the slides are basically, you know, analogs of questions, right? Or you can find literally like common questions to ask, you know, as an investor and things like that. And you can find answers to that. But I think good investors ask better questions, ask more substantive questions. And those questions are typically rooted in some level of deeper domain understanding or are wrapped within, you know, one or two assumptions or or or, or nuggets of prior knowledge about the space that then allow the founder to dive in deeper if there is something, you know, of, of greater substance there. Um, because it's all about maximizing the time you have, right? Like typically first calls are 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Um, you have a limited, limited amount of question slots, right, to ask. And so you don't want to be asking the same, uh, same basic or generic things. You want to be asking things that actually engage the founder and then you know challenge them a little bit more um since i think that's more interesting for like both parties involved um and then kind of on the on the flip side of that as well like as a founder if you notice that a vc is asking a bunch of generic questions they're probably not that engaged right or you know if they are engaged they might not be the right fit for you because clearly they might not know much about the space um and so i think i think there's signals on, on both sides for the investor and the founder to pick up on yeah, totally, totally. Um, when it comes to asking questions to founders on these pitch calls, I've, I've always, I like, I've had this the, these moments where I obviously don't know that much because I'm not an expert in everything, right? I'm an expert in very few things, maybe none. Figuring out how to ask the right questions that really like mentally stimulate both parties, I think, is really the key to a good pitch call and a great way to get an understanding if the founder is someone that you want to work with for the next 10 years. But on that note, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit and talk about tangible advice for people that want to learn more about venture capital and want to break into the space. So you had mentioned how uh, you were a founder. From being a founder, we're curious or became curious about the evaluation of companies, right? And from then on, you went to go work at Glasswing doing AI and ML which is also very hard conceptually um, if, if it, like when it wasn't booming, right? Uh, not many people had deep technical knowledge of AI. Um, but anyway, your first foray into VC was at Glasswing. How did you make that happen? What were some of the key things that you had learned from that first internship? Yeah, how did I make that happen? Well, I applied for a job listing. <laughs> you know, we have, you're, you're familiar with works. You know, we have our internal job board, uh, for co-ops and other or other full-time jobs at Northeastern. Um, and so they had a posting there. You know, I was lucky that uh, there had been previous folks from Northeastern that, you know, worked at, at Glasswing. Uh, they had a good opinion of Northeastern grads and students. And so just applied for that, went through the interview process, was was three round, it was three rounds of calls, um, and then got the offer. And, you know, everything else after that, you know, had really, really has cascaded off of that one experience I had in VC. Um, in terms of the things I've learned, I mean, there there's a whole plethora of different learnings or lessons I took away from my, my time at Glasswing. I think the most important one is less so of a lesson and more so of a mindset. VC is fundamentally a sales job, right? It's a relationship-driven job. In turn, as a result, it's a sales job. You're convincing people to take your money, and money is the most commoditized good in the world. Um, and these days, you know, seed funds and early-stage investors are more plentiful than they've ever been in history. Um, and so the question for founders has always been like, why should I care about this money? Like if it's a good founder, right? If it's someone that people want to invest in, they're going to have a lot of different choices, right? So they're like, how do you separate one from the other? And you kind of have the same question as, a, as an investor yourself. Like, how do I find the 
one that's the right fit. And so it's always a matter of finding the right balance of making sure that you see all the companies that are you know currently raising at any time, and then also being able to avoid boiling the ocean and really hone in on one or two segments or areas that you think are high potential or communities that have a lot of founders come from that you think are high potential. Um, and, and to go back on the idea of like the mindset I developed from Glassway, it's always the, asking the question to yourself, you know, every single every single week or every, every any given month, am I seeing the deal that matters most, right? Every, every, um, every year, there's like one or two deals that really, really matter. And it's the same thing, like every decade, there's one or two deals that really, really matter. And you can think about it in terms of like fund vintage. So every VC fund's vintage is the year in which they started investing out of that fund. In 1998, right, that, that fund vintage, there was one company that mattered or mattered the most, right, and that was eBay, right? And Benchmark invested in them. And a lot of other folks didn't get a chance. Or, you know, in, in 2012, um, the company that made it matter would have been Facebook, right? Um, and who invested in Facebook years earlier, like in their rounds in like 20, you know, 2005, 2006, et cetera. Um, there were only a few investors, right? It was Excel and a few others. That was the only company that mattered, right? And so the question is always, are we seeing those? And, you know, how do we determine whether or not those are, we're seeing the companies that matter, right? Like, and it's kind of this, um, is this Sisyphean task in the sense that there's there's no there's no end to it, right? And the feedback loops, like you don't know for five, six years whether or not you invested in a winner. Um, and so it's always a guess, right? And so it's something that's always going to keep you up at night as an investor. But yeah, that's always the question. It's always going to be, are we seeing the companies that matter? Um, and if we missed a company, then the question is always like, why did we miss them? Um, so I think it's always trying to be as, I guess, like hungry or like iterative in your own mindset as an investor as well. Um, in terms of like changing things on the fly to make sure that you're you're in front of the right founders and you're able to win the right deals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I kind of want to connect that last piece to your experience with RDV. So from my understanding, uh, Rough Draft Ventures specifically looks to invest in um, college founders. Is that correct? Yeah, student founders of any sort. So that could be undergrad, um, high school, graduate students, and everyone in between. Nice. Yeah. High school founders, man. I love that. Um, and so you, we talked a lot about finding the right people. And so what I was always a little skeptical about, especially with a lot of these college programs, was there's a lot of inherent risk to investing in student founders because they're also full-time students, right? When you were you know, the managing partner at Rough Draft, was your take on startups as a whole different from your take on startups run by student founders? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think first to give a little bit more context, so Rough Draft Ventures is the student investing arm of General Catalyst, which is a larger multi-stage uh, venture firm that was founded in Boston. Um, and we, we typically invested between 100K into 150K into student founders. Um, I think there were multiple parts of your question. I'll try to break them down. I think one, the concern... Wait, wait, really, of, sorry, really quickly. Yeah. Was Rough Draft Ventures, like a, was it a fund-based system or was it like it took money from General Catalyst we, we funds? We invested out General Catalyst funds, so it was Evergreen, yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Got it. Just curious. Yeah. And, and so in terms of the different segments of your question, the concern around, you know, student founders going full time, um, that's definitely a concern of ours. I think between 2021, 2023, uh, when I was with the organization, a lot of students might have dropped out or taken a leave of absence um, after they had raised money. Um, I think generally we're more flexible as investors than a lot of, you know, more institutional traditional funds. Uh, in that sense, you know, that we invest in students that we're still working on. I mean, that was our job, right? Like our job is to take that higher risk of investing in students, even if they might not be part-time, 
even if they might not have the same level of experience as someone who's been in industry for 10, 15 years. Because the belief there is like, look, a lot of great companies are going to come out of campuses, right? And we want to be on top of that, right? Like, like Microsoft came out of campus, you know, Facebook came out of Harvard's campus, et cetera. Um, and we saw that time and time again, you know, with, with Rough Draft Ventures as well. We invested in, back in the early days of the organization, invested in Instabase, right? Company was founded by MIT PhD, now worth, I've, I think, north of, you know, $1 billion. Uh, we invested in Spring Health early on, which is this uh, mental health platform for, for uh, employers. Um, that was recently valued at over $1 billion. The, the, the CEO, April Coe, is the youngest female founder of a of a unicorn ever. And, you know, we invest in other companies like StackPass, right? Like, I'm sure I've used StackPass. I'm not sure if you have. Uh, and a bunch of other things like that. Exactly. And so I think part of it is, look, our job is to take that higher risk and be okay with it, be comfortable with that. And I think another part of it is, like, as students, you have a greater level of access and visibility into your into your campus environment when it comes to startups or people that may be looking to found companies either now or in the future then you know a 30 year old investor right like they can't really it's like um it's like the meme like this the steve buscemi meme is like how do you do fellow kids um i mean no student investor wants to talk to someone like that right and so they want to talk to their peer and so part of it was being that representative on campus um educating the campus about you know venture capital startups being a founder it's as well um i think there's there's a lot of you know spaces in which great companies are founded that students actually have an advantage right like thinking about being part of a younger demographic, you're going to have a better sense of what appeals to, let's say, Gen Z, or I guess like what's coming up now, Gen Alpha. Um, you know, StackPass is not a company that, I, in my opinion, at least that could have been founded by a 35-year-old, right? That is solidly a, a Gen Z idea, and you have to understand that in terms of branding, in terms of growth, outreach, and everything else in between. Um, and so I think, yeah, certainly there, there's trade-offs, right? There's greater risk in it, but there's also greater reward at times. Um, and there's you can, unique advantages you can play to as both a student investor as well as, you know, student founder um, that can't be found through other sources. Yeah, absolutely. Now that I think about it, like if you're a student founder, you can probably uh, take more shots on goal because you don't have to worry about a family to feed, right? Yep. You don't have to... Yep. Well, hopefully about, not. <laughs> like, yeah, hopefully, yeah, yeah, hopefully not. Like, generally, a lot of, um, a lot of the people that are in college they have their tuition and rent paid for, right? A good amount. So, um, things like that. Yeah, I could see how there's a real space. There's real opportunity um, for RDV there. So that's that's really great. And then, so you went from Rough Draft Ventures. Did you leverage that experience or those connections from RDV to land at Audacious? Yeah, I actually got introduced to the team at Audacious by one of my friends at Rough Draft Ventures. Um, so in terms of leveraging that network, that's how I got my full-time jobs. <laughs> it seems like VC is that kind of recruiting game where you have to know someone who knows someone. It's through some sort of backdoor connection generally, right? Yeah, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I think it's really shitty. Um, I'm personally not a fan of it. I experienced similar things in gaming and esports where you kind of have this dynamic of it being an old boys club. In that sense, it always go it's always going to favor um, giving more opportunities or shots on goal, you want to call it, um, to folks that fit the prevailing norm of identity. So like cis white men and cis Asian men. Um, and so I think from my perspective, look, I benefited from that system, right? But I think, I don't think it's necess it's far from fair, right? It's far from meritocratic fully. Um, I think it's getting better these days. There's more and more, you know, advocacy groups and outreach programs and community members, uh, communities that are trying to bridge the gap in that sense. But I, I think it's, I think it's reflected 
in the distribution of investments as well when it comes to venture capital, right? Like there's a disproportionate lack of investment in, you know, black founders, in, in female founders, uh, in LGBTQ founders. I think part of that is because this industry has traditionally been dominated by uh, groups of people um, and identities that haven't necessarily been able to empathize or connect with, with founders. Like, let's say building for those, um, building for those like more, you know, I, I want to call like outsider identities, right? Um, and so I think, yeah, it, it, it's like that. And, you know, part of it is like, it's really shitty, but then, you know, maybe a question that goes off of that then, it's like, how do we, I think, work within that system or how do you start to break that down? I think part of it means understanding the game that people are playing. Um, when it comes to breaking into VC, it's all about one way or another, like showing your work ahead of time or showing people the output of your, showing people your output before you even start working for them or before you even go through an interview process. Um, common advice is to do things like, oh, send people deal flow, right? Talk to investors for coffee chats, send them companies that they might be interested in and so on and so forth. A lot of people are doing that now. Um, I think it becomes, I, I think it becomes even harder and harder these days to differentiate or, or set yourself out from the pack. Um, part of it could be done by, you know, building unique content or a unique brand around yourself. Um, maybe a podcast. A, a core idea. Maybe a podcast, Taiki. <laughs> maybe a podcast. Um, I think a lot of it is being able to summarize your identity or the identity that you want to sell to a firm within one or two lines. Um, there needs to be something they can identify you by. Like, again, you're meeting so many people in the job. As an investor, it's hard to keep track of everyone. Um, and so being, you know, having the ability to easily distinguish yourself or, or separate yourself from the rest of the folks that might be interested in going into VC, um, yeah. that, that part is key. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure you being like a previously exited founder is like this amazing reason to hire you right also having that right operational experience is huge as well that actually i was just thinking about how i got my most recent job in venture that i've been working for the past year at the venture city um i just recently ended my time with them but essentially there was a applicant portal that wasn't accessible through linkedin or through any of like the um public job application services right it was it was like a super hidden type form that you had to know somebody that would refer you to even apply. So uh, amongst that list were like all these MBA students and and um, people that just like had to know someone to get into the application. And I happened to get lucky. I just knew someone who knew someone that got me in and then it ended up working out. But the fact that these applications aren't even open, right? makes it really difficult for people who are in college or people who are young to even break into to this this world but i will say it's been so rewarding and it's been so fun like i I've, I've fallen in love with being in dc so i definitely think it's worth it you just have to be very smart about your approach to recruiting unlike many other career paths yeah i, I think you always have to be intentional about it but i think these days the industry as a whole has become more well known and quite frankly the exposure to it and the high pedigree of it has made it a more attractive target for folks. Like in the past, people want to like 10 years ago, what are the most like attractive career paths for, you know, business majors It's like investment banking and consulting. I mean, those two are still up there. People still want to get into MBB. Um, but then, you know, product management has kind of stepped up. Uh, people want to, you know, these days there is a more accessible direct paths into venture capital with the rise of more and more roles for junior investors. Um, yeah, and with that naturally comes competition. 
Yeah. And also, oftentimes, the MBB and like the bulge back at bankers, they exit towards VC. Yep. Right. So not only are the you're competing against these bankers and consultants that have always been high achievers their entire lives, but you're also competing against the kids that want to be going into VC right out of college. So I feel like we're definitely in a very special spot, but um, it's, it's a lot of connection building, right. And providing that value. And something that I wanted to really quickly cover was, you know, you said to have one or two lines of very specific value that you can provide. And I oftentimes really struggle with that because I, I don't know what investment theses I feel really strongly about, right. I don't really have a deep expertise in a specific vertical. And I want to be a generalist. Like I, I consider myself someone that uh, wants to just like know a lot about a bunch of different things. So it's hard to pitch yourself to VC firms as like I'm. I want to be a generalist, but I don't even know that much. And all I can really provide is like passion. But sometimes that's all you got. I mean, yeah. I mean, when it comes to junior roles in general, like why why do you think investment bankers are paid so much? It's not because they're doing more work in those hours. They sit there a lot of times in front of their computers doing nothing. Their job is to be available. Their job is to have time for work, right? And that's kind of what they're getting paid for. Um, when it comes to early days, I, I think, yeah, I, I think it's nice to want to be a generalist, but I think fundamentally, again, the question is always, hey, why should I hire this kid out of school as a generalist when there's someone with more experience and maybe has some sort of demonstrable uh, spike in one, one area or another that can also offer to be a generalist. I think you have to have, VC is always about, um, people love saying having, like, people always love to mention having strong opinions, like weekly health. Um, I think that's a big part of the job, right? I think you have to have opinions on things. Um, you need to be able to back up your opinions and you also need to be able to elaborate them into, let's say, like an investment thesis. But I think if I'm trying to, like, optimize for getting a job, like, let's say if I was recruiting right now, right, or I want to break into VC for the first time without prior experience, like, my job would be to think of my brand identity, which is different than you as a person. Ideally, I mean, if that's the same thing as you as a person, oh God, um, <laughs> there's there's issues with there uh, with people getting too much into the work and kind of getting lost in the sauce there. But you know, when it comes to the identity that you want to be pushing in your recruitment process, like you have to think about yourself as a spear. Like again, those one or two lines, like what are people remembering about you? What themes or sectors are they remembering that you're interested in? Um, and then kind of strategically thinking from a perspective of an applicant or someone who trying, who's trying to break into VC, um, do you fit, do you plug some sort of gap in the firm, mm. right? Let, let's say the firm has really, really strong experience in developer tooling and AI ML already. Like let's say they've done PhDs in the space or they found a previous mm -hmm, companies before mm -hmm. they started the firm. You come in doing the same thing, you're going to do the same thing, but worse, right? But if you go into a firm that's like, let's say, um, more generalist, but you know that they're trying to ramp up their consumer practice, right? They want to invest in more consumer packaged goods companies, let's say. And you've done those before, right? Or you've built those companies before, you worked with them before. Suddenly you're plugging that gap and then that's a part of your identity. And then they're like, okay, this person has interest, right? There's there's something interesting about the persona, like they fit what we want um, and they have strong opinions about the spaces that we'd like to learn more about. Um, and so we feel like we can learn more from this person versus, hey, this guy's just doing what we're doing, but he's younger and not as good as another candidate we can get. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And uh, I'm currently focusing on trying to find that thing that I want to specialize in right now. I'm thinking consumer sounds most interesting, but uh, tough returns in, in consumer recently. So we'll have to figure something out um, and I'll keep you updated as well, I you never know, right? You, you have study. companies like uh, like Liquid Death, right? That has yeah. that have been doing really well. 
uh, recent that's, you know, that's IPOs. That's such an interesting case study. I, we should talk about that um, off camera about liquid death. I'm like genuinely curious to hear your opinions on it. Yeah. Well, Casey, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show, but unfortunately our time is coming to an end. VC is really difficult to be good at. So for the sake of learning and uplifting the VC community, I need you to do two things for me. Two things. First, oh my God. Two things. First, shout out an investor that you respect and admire. And second, shout out a startup that you think can change the world. Yeah. Uh, on the investment side, I, I, have to, uh, I have to shout out my friend and friend and mentor, firm, former coworker, and I guess technically boss, Kyle Dolce at, at Glasswing VC, also Northeastern alumni. Um, really, really smart guy. Goes out of his way to help other people. Um, yeah, just all around, all, all around stand-up person. Um, and then in terms of a startup or a scale-up that I think will change the world, um, it's tough. There's a lot, right? Um, but I would say, I guess, like, keeping in line with the current theme of AI hype and that cycle, uh, got to give a shout-out to Common Sense Machines. It's a company in Glasswing's portfolio, uh, and they're building, uh, they're building foundational models to turn uh, videos and images into 3D assets. And so that could be used for video gaming, that can be used for industrial settings and everything in between. Um, and the idea there is to really bridge the gap between the physical world and the digital world um, through new technology that hasn't prior been, uh, you know, the capabilities haven't been developed before. And so, yeah, I thought that company is really exciting. Oh, man, what a great note to end the show on. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'll catch you later, Casey. Thanks.